The following is an encore performance. You're listening to Tales from the South. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. From UALR Public Radio and William F. Lehman Public Library, this is Tales from the South. True stories told before a live audience. Here's executive producer and host, Paula Morell, live at Tales from the South. So how about tonight's band, The Salty Dogs? What'd you think? Check out their website, thesaltydogs.net. Welcome to Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, and to another edition of Tales from the South, presented by William F. Lehman Public Library right here in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm your host, Paula Morell. Here strumming his 1931 National Resonator tonight, and every week is blues guitarist Mark Simpson. Mark wrote our theme music and plays for us live each week. And our incredible set by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. More can be seen at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are you all ready for some Southern-style storytelling? Tonight's show is all about gaining confidence and strength from within, both in big moments and small. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who lived them. Later tonight, Holly Patton pulls over to give up when she is given a gift from a stranger. And then Mary Carmody slings on her guitar and steps into the ring. But let's start the night with Dorinda Sharp, a choice word, and the chance of a lifetime to live forever in a famous writer's book in The Editor. I worked my way through the crowd into a line of more than 300 people to meet one of my favorite authors and get him to sign his latest book. It was October of 2009, and more than 1,500 captivated fans packed into a school auditorium to hear him speak. David Sedaris had come to Little Rock, and I was there, front row, stage right. I assumed he'd read from his previous works. He had seven books and dozens of articles to his name, so he didn't have to search for material. My assumption was wrong. He treated us to some of his unpublished work. One piece was from a forthcoming book of animal fables. In the story, several critters stood in an airport-like line, grousing about the unreasonable procedures and bureaucratic inflexibility. The counteragent, a black snake, refused to bend the rules. An argument ensued, and ultimately, the duck walked off. Something about the story bothered me, but I couldn't figure out exactly what. Was it one of the points of the story? There were several messages, some more subtle than others, about violence, racism, security, ignorance, and hypocrisy. Was one of the lessons hitting too close to home? I didn't think so, but I wasn't sure. I stood in line, waiting to meet this man whose words had been part of my life since college, and the story continued to eat at me. He warned us during his talk that he always asks questions of people when he does signings. If we were going to pry into his life, it's only fair for him to get to do the same, right? By the time I reached him, it was almost midnight, and I had identified my aggravation with the story. I had my question ready but he went first. His question led us into a nice little conversation about Fayetteville, my hometown, and the next stop on his tour. 
Then it was my turn. In the animal story, when the duck walks off, why does he walk off? I said. Why doesn't he waddle off? (laughs) He looked at me expressionless. I don't know, he said. I was afraid I might have offended him, so I kept talking. It's just that you're typically so precise with your word choice. He kept looking at me, but it felt more like he was looking through me. So I kept talking. I've never been one to get starstruck, but I've watched plenty of people become flustered and stupid when meeting an actor, a singer, or a politician. This time, I was the flustered, stupid one. I, I, I thought there might be some reason you chose... I, um, I was just wondering... Finally, I shut up long enough for him to answer. I don't know, he said again, seeming to come back into the moment. That's a very good observation. Thanks, I said, beaming like a kindergartner who had just gotten a gold star from the teacher. (laughs) Then the unbelievable happened. He reached into his jacket pocket and fished out a little notebook. I'd read about this notebook for years. I knew what it was, and I couldn't believe I was actually seeing it. He opened the notebook and started scribbling. I'm going to change that, he said, still scribbling. He stopped writing and looked directly at me. On your suggestion. I thought I might faint on the spot. I can die happy. I just edited David Sedaris. (laughs) I pulled myself together and managed to speak in a steady voice, I think. Thank you, I said. It's nice to meet you. Please say hi to Fayetteville for me. And I walked off. No, I bounced off. (laughs) I could think of nothing else for several days. I eventually stopped boring my friends with the story, but everyone must have heard it at least three times before I realized I had become a broken record. In early November of the following year, I was listening to NPR and heard someone reference a new Sedaris book. That has to be the book, I thought. It's been more than a year. It must be out by now. In fact... It was released in September. I had completely missed it. One question remained. Had he actually made the change? I rushed to Barnes & Noble, found the humor section, and then the book. It was on the bottom shelf, so I squatted in front of the bookcase and picked up Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk by David Sedaris. Not bothering to move to a chair, stand back up, or even sit down on the floor, I flipped through the pages with reckless abandon as if I was going to turn directly to the story or recognize it on sight. I stopped. I needed a plan. I decided to start with the table of contents. But what was I looking for? It had been a year. I didn't remember the whole story, much less the title. Something about a duck, of course, and a snake. Each chapter had animals in its title. The cat and the baboon. The parenting storks. The judicious brown chicken. Only one mentioned a duck, and only one mentioned a snake. The duck tail came first, so I decided to start there. The turtle, the toad, and the duck. Oddly enough, I didn't scan the story. I actually read it. Within three paragraphs, I knew it was the one. I kept reading slowly. I had enjoyed it the first time, so I knew it would be fun to let the story unfold as my memory caught up. Then there it was. I was so excited that I immediately sent texts to all the kind souls I had exhausted with the story a year earlier. Text one, New Sedaris book, page 27. Text two, quote, Yeah, well, to hell with both of you, said the duck, and he waddled off. (laughs) Text three, 
killed. All caps, three exclamation points. I had to fight my impulse to squeal and jump around. Instead, I closed the book, stood up, walked directly to the front counter, and bought it. Driving home, my mind drifted back to the euphoria of that October night. I can die happy. I just edited David Sedaris. Then a new question crept into my head. When I hit the door, I went straight to my MacBook and started checking all the standard online sources for the answer to my newest dilemma. After half a dozen websites, I reached for my well-loved Oxford Dictionary and thesaurus, and then two writer's handbooks I keep beside it. Gaining confidence with each source, I became comfortable with the answer. Edit is a transitive verb, meaning to prepare material, written, audio, or video, for publication by correcting, condensing, or otherwise modifying it. Edit is what I had done. I had been his editor. As I closed my laptop and returned the books to their shelf, my WJSAT folder caught my eye. This is where I keep the letters from places that have rejected writing submissions. It stands for, we'll just see about that. (laughs) Then I leaned back in my chair and smiled. Dorinda Sharp was born and raised in Fayetteville, Arkansas by Carolyn and Roy Sharp. She now lives in Little Rock. Dorinda is writing her first novel. In our next story, Holly Patton can't drive another mile and then finds the strength to go on in a gesture from a stranger in a rest area. I'm not sure where I am. I opened up the door of the white Taurus, my arm leaning on the door, my head hanging limply. The only sign I've seen on the dangerous, truck-infested Interstate 40 is a small, green, metal mile marker 200, which is somewhere between Brinkley and Memphis. My head thumps like it's getting ready to implode. The November sky is gray and the air is cool, but heavy. I've managed to pull over at a rest stop, and thankfully there are only four big trucks in the upper parking lot. The taste of bile lingers in my mouth and burns my nose. This pressure, oh God, please stop it. I'm a prisoner inside my own head. All I want now is relief, and a thought runs through my mind. End it. Just get out of the car. Lie down in this parking lot and let one of those 18-wheelers squish my head. The pressure of the truck couldn't equal the pressure inside my head. The blood throbs like it's stuck in a vice, and the pain is unbearable, and death would be a relief. The next three minutes feel like hours until finally vomit rises like a sleeping enemy rushing hot from my stomach. Weakly, I pull my head up, slumping my body sideways into the seat, trying to breathe. The crickets chirp incongruently, and empty Coke cans and pantyhose and snicker wrappers litter the parking lot. I'm tempted to crawl over and see if a tiny sip is left in the abandoned Coke can. Out of the blue, a deep, calm voice gently asks, Can I help? I think it's yet another hallucination. I am prone to hallucinate with migraines this severe. Miss, what can I do for you? What do you need? A heavy man in faded overalls and a black grayish beard with penetrating blue eyes walks towards me. 
Around him are long red leashes or two small white dogs wagging their tails. He's not a hallucination. My migraine-addled brain struggles. He's walking his dogs? I don't care one smattering if he's coming to abduct me. I'm not much to abduct right now. Tell me what you need. You look like you're in a heap of hurt. I can't answer. I'm sobbing hysterically now. The kindness of this stranger loosens a faucet of tears so deep and old they burst up like a corner fire hydrant. This is the first time anyone has offered to help me in days, months, maybe years. I realize if I don't speak now, he's going to think I'm mute. I need something to drink. A Coke? Does it work? I point weakly to the rusty old Coke machine near the restrooms. My head slumps back down into the seat. He looks at me strangely. As far as he can see, I'm deathly ill, hysterical, and I'm asking for a Coke, like it's my final meal. It feels like it is. He pauses, one hand in his overall pocket, says, I'll be right back. You stay still. What can I say to him? This morning, my 17-year-old son slammed his fist into the armoire because I told him I wouldn't live with his not calling or not coming home at night. My 14-year-old has a multitude of detentions from my tardiness and his not turning in homework. A call report sits next to me, noting the doctors I've tried to sell my wares to today, slick drug brochures flung all over the car. I've been jumping in and out of the car, trying to persuade physicians about the benefits of the newest, best psychotropic drug. It's extremely powerful. And now I'm going to have the breakdown at mile marker 200. Irony personified, that's me. That's my life. The 10-page report due in four hours for my counseling class at the graduate school flops above my head at the driver's side visor. It focuses on solutions to accomplish rather than on the past. A therapy called Solutions-Based Brief Therapy. Ha! Maybe that'll help. My current therapist isn't doing any good. She continues rehashing my family of origin issues. Abandonment. No parenting. No support. No guidance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm highly aware of that. I want to get past that, not stay stuck. Yeah, mister. Hey, can you come live with me and be a father to my two angry, testosterone-filled sons? Can you do this ridiculous job? And, oh, yeah, the car needs to be cleaned out before I meet with Bradley, my micromanaging boss, so I won't get written up again. And the really big question, can you help me understand why men continue to drive me completely crazy? Over sausage and mushroom pizza and Amstel Light, my boyfriend of the past year just told me he didn't want to move forward. And after three months of gut-wrenching silence, suddenly he showed up last night and spent two hours begging, pleading for me to give him another chance. I feel as if my own heart and head and shoulders and now all of me are tearing me to pieces. Anxiety, fear, exhaustion. And yet the only thing I can ask for is a Coke The quiet man ambles back. His big, thick hand is wrapped around a sweating can. All they had was Pepsi. His gentle voice brings more tears. How can this stranger be so kind? 
Thank you, I whisper. He reaches into his overalls and pulls out a neatly folded white handkerchief. Here, take this and wipe your face. Thank you, but I'm okay. I don't need it. Yes, you do. (laughs) He folds it and gently wipes the snot from my nose, saying, you just keep that one. I've got another one. (laughs) Well, here, let me find a dollar for my drink. No, you don't worry about that. Looks like you've got plenty of troubles already. Thank you. Thanks so much. This time, my words creep out from deep places of gratitude and awe. I'm so sorry to be any trouble. It's okay, honey. I don't know what has you so twisted up inside, but the good Lord does. I'm going to keep you in my prayers, and you're going to be all right. You just tell him your heart, and he'll help you. His blue eyes are like patches of the sky, slipping out from behind the clouds above us. Suddenly, the leaves blow around the car, and he turns to walk away. But there is an undeniable presence in the emptiness. I watch him climb into a shiny new red Peterbilt, and I glimpse the license plate as the truck begins to pull away. BHW039. What? My current contrite boyfriend, Mr. Unavailable's exact initials and my age, inked into the truck's license plate. This gentleman makes an everlasting mark on my soul. Miraculously, my head isn't feeling like there's going to be an imminent explosion. And even though I hate the sweetness of Pepsi, this one tastes good. (laughs) Soothing and healing. I wipe my face with the soft cotton handkerchief and I noticed three small initials, JFC. JFC. I wonder who he is. We haven't exchanged any typical niceties, and the only words I've been able to utter are Coke and thanks. Yet somehow he's touched me like no one has in years. I hardly recognize it. Unconditional kindness, nothing else. No ulterior motive. A clean white hanky, a cold can of Pepsi, and a few kind words. I reach over to cram the handkerchief into the glove compartment, but I stop and lift it to my nose and inhale for a few seconds. The smell of Tide envelops me. I'm filled in all my broken places as I remember back 30 years. It's Tide, the detergent Teeny used. It had been my grandmother's maid in my sanctuary for all of our laundry back in the summers of my childhood. Her scent and love now hovers in this car and fills me with her fierce love and determination. I remember those strong, dark arms wrapped tightly around me. An angel who drives a shiny red 18-wheeler leaves me with this tiny white cloth and the aroma of unconditional love. I inhale one last time and carefully place the hanky in the glove box. I sit back in my seat and look into the now setting sun and ease onto the access road towards home, knowing I'm not alone. Holly Patton lives a full life in Little Rock where she has two sons, two granddaughters, and incredible friends. She is a writer, minister, athlete, and a woman still discovering new joys and passions. In our final story of the night... Mayor Carmody takes us to the center of the ring with a guitar and lots of eye makeup in Wrestling with the Blues.
When my phone rang Thursday, it was my friend Johnny Mac. You want to make some extra dough Friday night? I graduated with a BA in English the year before, but what paid my rent was a day job in a music store and nights singing in bars. My mom couldn't understand why I didn't just move back home so I'd get a real job, make money, find a decent place to live. Extra dough? Doing what? Johnny Mac was a guitarist and a wannabe entrepreneur and was often looking for a favor. Singing at Norfolk Arena, there's this promoter guy who's booking wrestling matches there and he wants solo and duo musicians to play before the matches and maybe in between rounds. Yeah, right. Why would he want that? Oh, cheap entertainment and he's probably got a limited budget. Well, I was in desperate need of a space here for my one-room apartment. Suddenly, I was intrigued. So, like how much? Well, I called that afternoon. Reed Douthat. The voice was monotone and clipped. Um, my name is Mayor, and I play music here in town, and silence. I swallowed air and jumped in. I heard you were looking for musicians to play at the arena this weekend. Yeah? You have your own sound? I affirmed that I did. One hour, 120 bucks. You got to do some pretty lively stuff. No Joan Baez. <laughs> I don't do Joan Baez, I said stiffly. Several years of bar music had toughened my repertoire considerably. And that last line was like a gauntlet thrown down. Be at the arena by 6 Friday. First match is at 7. You got to be ready to go. I tried on six changes of clothes Friday before I gave up and wore what I'd usually wear to an average club gig. Black Levi's, tight t-shirt, lots of eye makeup. What does one wear to a wrestling match? <laughs> Especially when you're part of it. I pulled up in the fire lane at Norfolk Arena, a hulking granite tomb of a building built sometime in the 1940s when Navy enlisted men crowded in to watch the fights. I put on my flashers, got out the hand truck I kept with me, and started loading my small PA in. Inside, gaudy amounts of brighter-than-natural light, booming echo, big wrestling ring in the center. At least it was warm in there, although there was also a definite scent of something like locker room. I felt my first true prickle of fear. What the hell was I getting into here? I sauntered up to a man with a headset and a clipboard. He was about 40 built compact like he'd been a wrestler once with tightly brill-creamed hair the color of lo mein noodles. <laughs> Can you tell me where I'm supposed to set up? He sized me up momentarily and jerked his thumb at the ring. That's where you're going to be. In the ring? Couldn't I be like next to it? In front of it? He looked at his watch. The unspoken message? Take it or leave it. I squared my shoulders. That which does not kill us will make us strong. After all, it wasn't something my parents had to know about. I pushed the two long speaker columns of my PA underneath the ring, facing out in opposite directions. I connected the cables to the mixer and hoped the arena's massive echo wouldn't turn everything into a sonic stew. I smiled at the ring girls in hot pants and high heel boots holding placards with numbers for each round. And then I climbed onto the stairs between the ropes and up on the canvas with my microphone stand and guitar. If you have never spent any time in a wrestling ring... You should know that the canvas bounces underfoot just as much as it looks like it does on TV. 
I edged toward the ring center with my stand and guitar, feeling like I was on the deck of a ship, trying to balance my center of gravity somewhere between my thighs and knees. After I got situated and the jello-y sensation eased up, I dared to look at the arena seats. Not a sellout by any means. And normally I find someone in the audience and sing to them directly, but not this night. I hit the guitar strings one time, a bold, satisfying that was absolutely huge, bouncing up from the speakers and spreading out to the sides of the arena. And for a moment, I had everyone's attention, staring at me. What on earth is that crazy girl in the ring doing? And they all went back to their non-attention. I inhaled deeply. It's all or nothing now. I'd tried to make a list of the rowdiest songs I knew, Blues and rags and anything somewhat body. So I started with that'll never happen no more and dust my broom. And when I saw a glimmer of interest in the slack-jawed faces around me, I slid into hesitation blues and whiskey and gin. What a power trip. My voice had never rung with such presence. The quivering canvas underfoot now felt like it was moving with me, adding to my swaying rhythm. I did five songs in a row without stopping. It wasn't like singing at D.B. Cooper's or Papa's Pub or any of my usual gigs. This now, I could get used to. Man, I love, stole from my best friend. That girl got lucky, stolen back again. You better come on in my kitchen. Because it's going to be raining outdoors. Scattered anemic applause. I might hone a career as an old blues mama after all, but then things started fading just as fast. I tried St. James Infirmary blues, and if I can't sell it, I'll keep sitting on it, bending the notes, rolling my eyes when necessary, anything to get the song across. Despite how cold I'd been earlier, now there was a line of sweat across my hairline. I started glancing out of the corner of my eye, waiting to see someone make a guillotine motion across their neck, or some sign to let me know it was all over. The song ended, an ominous buzzing echo took over. Not a single clap, no glances from the ring folk. Over to the side, I noticed several wrestlers in warm-up robes, milling restlessly and jogging in place, and then... Incredulously, Marilyn? Marilyn Carmody, is that you? (laughs) I nearly wrenched my neck trying to locate that voice. And then, just as amazingly, I found it. My dad's best beer-drinking buddy, (laughs) Walt Isaacs and his wife, Billy, about six rows from the floor. Nobody will call me Marilyn but my folks and their friends. Walt and Billy were grinning, they're waving at me like crazy, and I knew that was the end of my tough girl showbiz career at the arena. <laughs> I gave my audience a sardonic salute and lifted my guitar from around my neck, preparing to exit the ring, just in time, it seemed, since the first match was ready to start. Is that really you? Wait till your folks here where we saw you. <laughs> I stood still. I waited for my neck to be hugged and life as I knew it to resume. Mayor Carbony is a native of the South, but in Arkansas only for the last three years. She is a voiceover actor, musician, and songwriter. So how about our stories and storytellers tonight? What'd you think? 
Tales from the South is presented by William F. Lehman Public Library, the Argenta Arts Foundation, AY Magazine, and the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute. Download and listen to our podcast on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at robinwoodbnb.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at bakerhousenlr.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive, and we'll see you next week on Tales from the South.